0: The University of California, Riverside presents Blue, Gold and Black, the podcast that's dedicated to amplifying black voices at UCR. I'm Dominique Bill from UCR's Community Engagement and Outreach Unit. In each episode, we'll be talking to UCR students, campus leaders and community partners to explore the intersection of being black and being a Highlander at UCR. And I can't wait for you to meet today's guest. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Blue, Gold and Black podcast where we're amplifying black voices at UCR. I am your host, Dominique Bill. Today, we have a super, super special guest. Dr. Kendrick Davis is with us. He is our associate dean of assessment and evaluation over at the School of Medicine here at UCR. We're going to be talking to Dr. Davis today about his position, um, what exactly his position means for students, but we're also going to be talking a little bit about his upbringing and his background um, and how that influences him and the work that he does to support our students here at UCR. Dr. Davis, how are you doing today, sir?
1: Brother, I'm doing beautifully. Um, In all honesty, it's an honor to be here. We've met before, so it's really cool to chop it up with you, my brother, and you know we give our community nicknames. And so back in the day, there was a cat named Dominique Wilkins who played basketball, you know? And so that's why I greeted you the way that I did, the human highlight reel, you know? And so uh, (laughs) let's get it on like that, brother. I want to definitely chop it up with you because we had a beautiful interaction last time and it's about our community and I'm from the community as you are. And so it's an honor to be here.
0: No, thank you so much. Um, and I appreciate the compliments for show. So I'm super excited to, you know, really dive in and unpack, you know, the conversations that we've had previous. So super excited to amplify your voice to our guests. So um, really quickly, Dr. Davis, just so we can kind of start our interview by planting you here at UCR, um, in your own words, please tell us what does it mean to be um, the Dean of Assessment and Evaluation here at UCR for the School of Medicine.
1: I mean, it means I'm home. Mm. And so in all honesty, I'm, I'm born in Inglewood, early 70s. My parents moved out to, to Rialto early 80s, so moved to the IE about 10 years old. Uh, one of my first experiences with universities here was both with Cal State San Bernardino, because my mother was there for her master's degree in, in educational administration, but she also took classes at UCR. And so there's a very kind of magical connection with me and UCR because my mother was an educator who was taking classes there. And I got a chance to walk on that campus at 10. And then you know how our families are. So my mother made sure that I was kind of her, both her guinea pig when it came to learning, um, which was a beautiful blessing. And, and so I got a chance to present uh, in front of uh, faculty and, and students who were working on administrative credentials back then at 10 and 11, because my mother was always using me in presentations. And so I've got this long-standing history of a positive
0: bond with, with UCR. Mm, very, very, that, that's a deep history. And I, and I definitely want to unpack that a little bit. Um, just tell us really quickly though, for the students watching who have no idea what it means to be a Dean of Assessment and Evaluation, kind of just give us a quick snapshot of what that looks like before we kind of get into your family history.
1: Oh, man. Right now it looks like a lot of meetings. Um, <laughs> but no, I'll be real. Um, let me give you a two di- uh, a couple of ways to describe it. Um, I'm the data guy. So all the different surveys that ask the students how well the instructors are teaching, mm. how well the instruction is sequenced, how well the courses are preparing them to both um, complete exams because medicine is very test heavy, mm-hmm. but also be prepared to be um, practicing physicians who are excellent at their field and craft. So I, I do the surveys and the analysis of all the data that says how well our students are being prepared, how well we teach, and how well we support them reaching their goals. And so that's kind of a, a kind of snapshot of what I do. It means that everything that they graded on when it comes to scores that they create in exams, to national exams that, that they take, our office literally mm-hmm. collects all that data, stores all that data, so I, I, right now, I've been leading an effort to build a relational database for the school to make sure that there is a, not only a, a central storage of that data, but a way to pull that data across multiple years, different Excel spreadsheets, and to actually find trends that help us to both identify when students are doing really well and keep doing those things, but also catch students who may be at risk for not doing as well and provide them the adequate support to actually uh,
0: thrive. Mm. So essentially, your position is really designed or what you're trying to do is make sure that the School of Medicine is always operating at a um, at a level that is supporting students and making sure that they are being properly trained, properly educated based on their needs. um, Yes. um, Specifically. Right.
1: And that's very well stated. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and, And to even go further, what we do is so In the course of this is my ninth school year at UCR. I Mm -hmm. actually started a year before the School of Medicine opened. The wild thing is. In the course of that life, we've collected so much data from the students that we've literally responded to and made changes that were for the students as well. And so from the students, we receive information that then we make changes for the students. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of of captures what my office does in a large part, you know, because we get that data to the right individuals to make sure that now changes is inevitable.
0: No, yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to make sure that I was framing that properly, especially Mm -hmm. for current students and prospective students, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, the UC has a great way of slapping on these fancy titles and making things seem complicated. So I just wanted to make sure that we were framing that properly. But essentially, your job, your team, your guys' responsibilities, making sure that the needs of the students are being met yep. based off of the needs that the students are expressing explicitly. And all through data. Yes, gotcha. exactly. So
1: we're making sure that the, the needs of the students are met and they're responsive to that based on the data that we get about
0: them and from them. Beautiful. So we're going to unpack that a little bit more. But at this time, you already kind of touched on it a little bit, but I definitely want to get into um, your family history. Right. Because I think that's going to provide, you know, a great amount of context into the work that you do. Right. Because you have a job and that's great. But it's who you are that, to me, really makes that job meaningful and impactful for our students. So tell us, you know, uh, briefly about your family history, start with um, where you grew up, where is your family from um, yeah, no and doubt. how that kind of influences you as you move throughout your childhood.
1: Uh, I think probably a lot of kids in the IE have this this life experience, right? There is a, one aspect of my family that comes more from what's considered the South, mm. you know, and there was an era in there when my parents made that exodus and you can actually study historically, I figure probably about at least a decade, That's wrong. Half of a century. So about five decades or so, Mm -hmm. you had about a good 50 year time frame where there was an exodus from the south to the west to California because it was opportunity. And you can see that as well from the south to the north to places like Chicago. Cali was one of those destinations. So Mm -hmm. my family came here when my parents were in their teens. Uh, They were young parents as well. Uh, My father had visited as a kid because of that kind of half a century kind of exodus to more Mm -hmm. opportunity. And California became a place of destination for him. Mm. So when my family first came out here, my my parents had great uncles and aunts who lived in areas like San Diego and and Los Angeles. And uh, they started there in San Diego, but ended up in L.A. I was born in Inglewood. My parents lived there about 10 years. So I have this kind of reared by both Los Angeles and the IE because, of course, when we left L.A., we didn't leave L.A. We were the first from the family who lived in the big city, to move into more bedroom communities in Southern California, but our base was still in LA. Mm -hmm. So we literally spent probably the first three years we had moved out here, we spent more time in LA than we spent in the IE. So probably till I was about 13, I spent more time in LA, but Mm. the IE is home. Man, I went to high school out here, junior high out here. I played ball out here. And so I've made a lot of friends and my family has always been active. My parents, my dad coached sports, my mom coached sports. My mom's an educator. She was a teacher for years, went from Fontana to the high desert. Um, And we've mentioned this before. There's a school named after my mother, and she's still alive. So as a black woman.
0: Yeah, go ahead and shout that school out really quickly. Oh, yeah, no doubt.
1: Good looking out. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Melva Davis Academy of Excellence. Um, Mm. My mother's Melva Davis, of course. The school is in, it's actually in Victorville in terms of the city, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's part of the Adelanto School District where she was an administrator for a lot of years. I think she spent over 30 years in that district. Uh, And and again, I was around education my whole life. I grew up on community colleges. My mom went to El Camino. I was on that campus as a toddler into my, you know, almost 10. Then Mm. she was at Dominguez Hills, Cal State LA. I was on those campuses. I know Cardiac Hill because I was walking that bad boy with my mama when she was getting her teaching credentials. Then I came out. We came out here. I've been on Cal State San Bernardino's campus before I was a student there. And then, of course, on UCR's campus before I became a professor. So I have this long history of, and I think our community needs to understand that, we come from, like any other family, very little. Um, We didn't have a lot of economic base, but my family pushed education. So even as a young parent and as a teenage parent, my mother had my sister and I on college campuses all the the time. Mm. So we had this familiarity that it's a community, it's a culture. If you think about kids who grew up in the military, it's akin to that. It's usually a pretty diverse place. Mm -hmm. It's usually a pretty embracive place. And the universities, at at least in the 70s and 80s, did a really good job of reaching out to our community, at least to some extent, and providing some type of support. But once you got there, you'll find a lot of individuals who want us there, want to see us succeed and believe that there's a value and a place and a home for us. And Mm -hmm. that's true. The reality is there's black genius all over the place. And Mm -hmm. the better the university gets at identifying that, acknowledging that, in supporting that, the better off the community will be.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I think also um, one, one of the things that, you know, at least as it pertains to black folks in the pursuit of higher education, it's all about access. Right. Um, you know, black people, you know, on a broad sense, on a societal level. Right. There's not a lot of resources. Right. Um, but having, at least having the access to the resources to know that something is attainable, right? So you being on a college campus, nine, 10, 11 years old, um, college is not like some mystified place that you gotta do X, Y, and Z to get there. There's a process, right? Um, but it's attainable because you've seen it, you've experienced it, you watched your mother go through it. Um, and that aspect of history is really important. And so can you shed a little bit more light, um, your parent. You said that your parents, as teenagers, came to California. Um, what was some of their history? Where did, Where did they migrate from? From the South, um, and talk to us about a little bit of that history because I think that's a very uh, rich history. I Man, history is cyclical. So yeah. the wild
1: thing about it is my parents are, are from Oklahoma, um, mm. and, and and literally both sides of that family has been in Oklahoma since prior to it being you know receiving statehood, which mm. means you know knowing the history, you know that there were both. Um, freedmen in oklahoma and natives in oklahoma and and hence uh both the oral history of my family is black and red um and then genetically we are as well because i've done the dna test but that history is very interesting right because you have a scenario where initially the thought was they were going to a land that was undesirable hence Mm -hmm. the trail of tears Mm -hmm. then they get there and discover that there is some value to the land in a variety of ways and so inevitably it means that We're not the ones who benefit from those things, including all the history that you've heard about Black Wall Street that, you know, further into the history shows you how racist that area was like the nation. And so my parents coming to California was an opportunity for them to advance and get out of, you know, a very rural racist in Oklahoma is kind of interestingly juxtaposed to the South because some people consider it the Midwest. But Mm -hmm. if you look at certain programming from the federal government standpoint, it's the South because of its culture. Mm -hmm. And so. Wow. Thing is, my parents came here young, um, not with much. Started off in San Diego for some years, not, not even years, I'm sorry, for, for about 10 months. Uh, mm. My dad got into the um, postal service. So he was a clerk with the World Way post office in, in Los Angeles for years. And that's how that we got into Los Angeles and, and went from there. But I want to highlight this point because you captured something really uh, key. Historically thinking about what the South represents and why there was an exodus seeking opportunity also kind of paints an interesting picture because inevitably given that my roots are there when I got an opportunity to return and I didn't grow up there, I went back Mm. and it's really wild. I went back for graduate school. So my, my master's and my doctorate are from the university of Oklahoma boomer sooner. (laughs) Okay. Got to represent, you know what I'm saying? But let's be very real. Man, I got out there and it was a a rude awakening. Um, That Mm. culture is still to some extent 40, 50 years behind. Mm -hmm. Uh, It feels like you literally step back into the civil rights movement, which was before we were born. Right. And you're getting a chance to see firsthand. Now it gives you that sense of how racist America really is, what conservatism means to them, Mm -hmm. because it means resistant to change. And so you can see why my parents left for a greater opportunity, because you go back to a place. And I was in my uh, mid to late 20s when I went back. Um, Well, I shouldn't say went back. I I went to live Mm -hmm. for graduate school and I never lived there. I just visited. And I got a chance to see how, man, the culture is so, it's behind politically, religiosity is ridiculous, and it's that good old boy religion that justified why they were having picnics and hanging us, and still can't acknowledge that, but you can find it in any history book other yeah. than K-12 through where you look a little bit. Yeah. And so it's, it's that history is still pervasive, so much so to where it, it creates a, a culture that it's got a lot of obstacles and barriers so i could both understand why my parents left for greater opportunity and when i went back it gave me a chance to connect with my roots and see the battles and the fights that we still got to fight you know yeah
0: no absolutely um and you know i have a, a I, I got my undergrad in psychology um and it right before i graduated when i started working on my senior project and stuff you know i realized how intimately connected history is to our psychology. Our history almost is our psychology, if you know, if I could be as bold as to say that. Um, and so I guess from your standpoint, right, having roots there and finally going back for the first time to actually see it for yourself as a young man, as a young adult, where you can actually be conscious and process, I can imagine how jarring that experience could have been coming from Cali, going into that setting and experiencing those things. So what I would like for you to do is talk to me a little bit about how um, blackness was integral in your family growing up as a young child. Um, Obviously, you have this rich history. You said it's painted in black and red, Um, but really paint that picture for us um, about how your family centralized your black consciousness as a young child.
1: I think it's, it's twofold, right? I think the easiest way to address this is on the one hand, um, especially my mother and father, were about black excellence, and so can you still hear me? Okay, yes, perfect, sir, perfect. And so I mean, I want to I want to highlight that first mm-hmm. because I want to offset the programming that some of us tend to um, end up being influenced by and also shaped by, right? So there's this programming, and we talked about this last time, wherein there's a lot of revenue spent, there's a lot of effort generated to even frame things in such a manner to where it's always the worst framing possible for us in every situation possible. We can be the victim, and somehow, some way, the media, in its framing, the reactions are always still disadvantageous to us, even under circumstances when we've been optimally victimized so we can be murdered. And the first thing that this narrative does in this culture is question what we might've been doing to have warranted the misery that we just faced by a system that continues to put that on us. So black excellence is a counter to that because if the messaging is constantly we're less than and deserving of all of the negative things that happen, then we've got to know who we really are. Yeah. And so I think my parents did a phenomenal job of recognizing that in their babies of the sixties, right? So they were teenagers at that era when it was a major civil rights movement. And here's what's real. They weren't in the major cities seeing that they were seeing that on the news and hearing that through a variety of circles that you could hear that in the black community, but knowing that they needed to actually create a generation that was responsive to a world that was against them. Mm. So me, being the recipient of that love black excellence was excellence was what they were pushing for me so very early on there was both the introduction to all of the heinous things that society was doing to us so i was seeing documentaries early on my mom would literally rent the old vhs's in the big bay i think it was called a betamax or something like that back in the day before i was 10 from the la school district and she'd have these huge tapes and they'd have documentaries on things like nat turner I knew about the picnics they were having and them murdering and hanging us even when we were innocent and they're taking their babies to dress up in their finest Sunday dresses. They'd Mm. gone to church before and or after they've been lynched us. And Mm. so I got introduced to that very young. My parents would tell me stories about athletes at UCLA who had been arrested and found Hung in their in their sales and they hadn't done anything wrong. So I knew about how ridiculous the system was. The police were. But at the same time, then my mom was making me work and my dad was making me work like crazy. Whether I was playing a sport, I had to be excellent. My dad was on me. I might go five for six in a baseball game. and He was like, what happened in that one at bat? But it meant that I was always striving to be my best. My mother was going to make sure that during the summers, I didn't get a chance to do anything until I hit that floor in the morning doing chores. Then after I did my chores, I was going to do literally some homework for a couple of hours, show her the product of that. She'd actually review it, grade it. And as long as I got 90 plus, then I could go play the rest of the day. Mm. So today's my birthday, homie. I woke up and did did the No, it's love. And it wasn't about that, but I appreciate it. No, No, I I did the same things I was brought up to do because it's what got me here. Black excellent means excellence means it's my birthday. I still got up and did chores. I'm shoveling poop. I do that every morning because I got fur babies. I do dishes. I make sure that I take care of the things and my body so that I'm doing the things right the same way I was brought up because that's what you build excellence on a routine of excellent work of accountability, of responsibility to the things that matter most to you, your community and your family. That's the way we do this. So that's the first side of things Mm. in terms of what helped my blackness was that ability to understand, man, we've got to be excellent at what we do. And there's something very special about who we are because when we only represent just over 10% of the population, which means every one in 10 is us, Mm. it's a whole lot of effort being put to convince us, of all this negative about us, even that there's a justification as to why there's a target on our backs constantly. All that says to me is flip that we must be more powerful than anything we've ever been told. And why would the slave master, the Mm. oppressor tell you who you are? All Mm. he keeps doing is showing you by having a target on your back. That means that that fear is high. Why? Mm. Who are we really? And Mm -hmm. so to me, we're more excellent than any label we could ever give ourselves. The reality is in the activity. And if you can see how active they are and worried about us trying to stamp us out, that must mean we must be way more powerful than you can ever realize. And now let's be real. We have to be really good people because I've never met a black man or a black woman who says for all the heinous things that have gone on to date, I'm feeling vengeful toward the system. We're forgiving. We're loving. We're peaceful because there's something very beautiful and powerful about us. Never let that go. There's the excellence I want to instill in all my babies in the community. You're a black genius. You're an amazing group of human beings, or there wouldn't be so much of an effort to try to get rid of you.
0: Absolutely, and I, you know, and I want to put a, a really strong emphasis on the intentionality of this system in the way that it treats us. It's not happenstance. It's not coincidence. It didn't just so happen that a black person woke up and a white person woke up and a black person woke up and, right? It's a lot of intentionality that goes into constructing these institutions and these systems, right? And when you talk about loving and forgiveness and our ability to be empathetic and see the humanity in other people, right? Again, that stretches back to our history, right? When we go back thousands and thousands and thousands of years to Africa, right, where, how, how did our people grow up? There was an abundance of resources, right? So we didn't have to worry about some of the things that drive the political and social landscape now when it comes to access to resources. It was an abundance. So I could look at Dr. Davis and, you know, I don't need to be worried about his food over there because I got plenty of food over here, right? And that history carries on into present day. And it's 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 amazing that this system and these institutions can paint this picture as if like if they get off of our necks for one second, we're going to flip the script and burn everything down and, you know, enslave the people. And it's not about that. Um, it's not about that at all. Right. It's about being able to recognize the dignity and our humanity. Um, and so I really appreciate you kind of sharing that and painting that picture for us. I want to kind of get into now. um specifically your journey through higher education. Right. So you have all of this rich context. You have all of this rich history. Um, you know, the whole work twice as hard to get as much. Right. That's instilled in us at a young age. And, you know, it sounds like your parents were very adamant about making sure that you were excellent and recognizing your black genius so talk to me a little bit about your pursuit of higher education specifically. You're getting ready to graduate high school. How did you determine what college you wanted to go to and what were some of the experiences you had in undergrad that were really formative for you?
1: Oh, that's a beautiful question, man. And I think this will really resonate. Um, beginning of my senior year, I was planning on going to an HBCU. Mm. Um, I played uh, high school baseball. I had played basketball, but I wasn't playing at the time. So my focus had been one sport. I had come to the point where I was like, okay, I, I'm really, really great at one sport, so I'm going to hone in on that. But I'm also a musician. So I was a percussionist from sixth grade all the way through my senior year of high school. So I had written to Grambling's um, baseball coach and their um, band director. Mm. I literally had interest in both going to play baseball at Grambling and to be a percussionist. And part of what helped it is that uh, a sister who – was in my uh, percussion line when I was in high school, was a bass system, man, I mean like a little Sheila E. And mm-hmm. she got into grambling on a scholarship and was like the wow. only second female uh, percussionist on their drum line. So oh, she wow. had told the drum major about me. I had already reached out to the baseball coach, so that was my plan. Um, like anything else, man, I was a nerd and an athlete. Um, met a little honey my senior year who I'd actually met, I, let me be honest, I met her my junior year. Okay. I'm um, early in my senior year. We we did a little flirting and hooked up, and I had been a pretty straight and narrow dude, man. Somehow, some way, we got pregnant halfway through my senior year. Wow! And it, to, it totally threw, man. If you can only imagine, um, I was so stressed. I my head was spinning. <laughs> I, I college became a. I did not have my stuff together in order to pursue grambling.
0: Right. I ended
1: up at RCC. Okay. Um, I walked on to play baseball. I still because then once I realized I'm gonna be a teenage father, I went head over heels into I'm gonna try to be the best young man trying to become a man I can be. Mm-hmm. Um, went to work. I literally started a job the day after graduation. So all the homies were at Magic Mountain uh, celebrating their their senior accomplishments and that they right. they're new adults. And I was at work trying to sell pink suits to pimps in San Bernardino to make money <laughs> for my baby. You know, and 9,000%. so I worked at a spot called New York men's fashions. And back then it was at the central city mall. That's now the carousel mall. That's not really a mall no mo because of mm-hmm. course the way things go, anytime the recession hits and money's not good, then our community suffer most. And so mm-hmm. that mall died, but I worked at it when I was 17, all the way to almost 19. Um, I from then on, man, because I was a teenage pop, I worked, I balanced school or tried. So let's be honest. The first few years, I was trying to balance work, school, becoming a father. And I got married within that first year after I graduated from high school. So the demand was no joke.
0: Well, just really Uh, quickly, just well, really quickly, just to, you know, show that I can relate. I have my daughter was born uh, spring semester of my junior year in college. So (laughs) and so, you know, I was full time student. I played football, which was a full time job. I worked. 20 some odd hours a week. Right. Um, And when I stopped playing football, I got a second job. And, you know, so that struggle of trying to prioritize as you're trying to really come into what you think is manhood right because you don't know you you have an idea but you don't know because you're navigating it 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 can it's it's not it can be it is tough you know what i'm saying you have to make decisions am i gonna go to class today or am i gonna spend the day with my daughter you know Um, this is look, look look look, look, it's real it's real so
1: i see you in me and someone told me
0: this years ago so
1: i gotta say this to you my daughter was born the fall semester of my freshman year in college at rcc Got you. I literally struggle with exactly what you're talking about. There were times when I went to go to her doctor's appointment. I had class. And then Mm. as a full-time athlete, I can't miss practice. So there were times in there where, man, I I almost am in tears about this, so I'm only going to say it briefly. Mm. I missed my wife's graduation my senior year in baseball because they were threatening to take my position even though I was the best player on the team. And I'm going to say it right here on camera. Because mm. I used to beat up on UCR at Cal State San Bernardino in baseball. And you already know how we play. I was influenced by the Negro Leagues. So yes, I could sir. ball. And I was still having to worry about my position after I had earned it every year. Because that's part of this systemic issue, right? Mm-hmm. I missed my wife's graduation from the American Nanny College that we paid for her to go to. So that she could actually work in a preschool. So our daughter didn't have to be cared for by someone we didn't trust. Mm. And then couldn't afford to put her in daycare. No way. So we had to be strategic about my wife getting an early childhood certificate and going to a trade school for 15 months for Mm -hmm. her to work at at Children's World and our daughter to attend there the first five years of my daughter's life. But I missed that graduation because of the very demand that you're talking about, the way the system treats us. But all of that, if it doesn't kill us, makes us stronger. Mm Because see, what ended up happening is my grades suffered my freshman year. But then after I kept looking in that baby's eyes and saying, working all these damn jobs, making minimum wage, I'm going to be my best man for you. Then I realized that education was going to be something I had to be serious about because the work wasn't taking care of. me. No matter how hard I worked, either I was if I tried to get something that made more money, the first thing they do for me is say I either didn't have enough education and or enough experience. And I'm like, if you keep throwing that at me, when am I going to have enough to provide for my family? So I was like, I got to go to school.
0: Cognitive but here's what happened man.
1: I had some professors and it doesn't matter what they look like if they're humane So I had a professor named George whiny I'm putting shout out to him respect. He's passed years ago but Mm. if anyone who's in his family ever hears anything like this know that that brother was the first one outside of my Family to plant this seed for a doctorate. I was at Cal Mm. State San Bernardino in about my junior year daughter was about two years old and he was one of my professors And he'd call me into his office every few days because I was in his swimming class. And I sucked at swimming. (laughs) I literally would be in class an hour after class ended to finish my course requirements because I wasn't a good swimmer. I'm a hell of an athlete. And he was like, dude, your body percent is about 4%. Guys who are built like you aren't great for the water. But Mm -hmm. he would work with me and he'd talk to me and he realized that I was a young father. He realized that I had some intelligence and he realized that I was trying to do the right thing for my family. So he called me in the office and he's like, I know you want to be a professional athlete, but what I want to tell you is that look at these statistics. There are a million black boys in the United States playing sports in high school. Look Mm -hmm. how few of them reach division one and division two colleges. And I was at a D two school. Then he's Mm -hmm. like, from that, look how few make it to the professional ranks. The percentages are ridiculous. He was like, look at how few blacks are in PhDs and professors in the university. You should be looking to pursue a PhD, and he was the first one to plant the seed. And do you know at first I didn't listen? I literally looked at him and said, I've been beating odds my whole life. So while you're giving me statistics, I'm used to beating those statistics. Mm. I'm going to beat them. And I did reasonably well, but I didn't make Mm -hmm. it to the big leagues. So then he started popping up in my head constantly. I'd be on the back of a damn professional bus, sometimes traveling 18 hours, no air condition, broken down restroom, making $750 a month to pursue this baseball dream to take care of my family. And too many of us think that entertainment is the only way to take care of our family. But my ass was in the back of that bus reading Mm. while they were doing everything else, drinking alcohol. I'm drinking strawberry quick reading nudie magazines i'm reading deep books and then i realized there's a culture that my mom introduced to me to long time ago i need to go back to invest in and change my life so when i stopped playing pro ball i went back to cal state san bernardino an old professor remembered me and it wasn't george winey it was terry rizzo and terry rizzo was like i'm sicilian i know what it's like to deal with racism i remember you when i wasn't chair of this department i used to come to games and it was tripping me out how you balance work School, parenting, and you're a hell of an athlete. I think mm-hmm. you should get a PhD. And I was like, this is the second time someone said that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to listen. So I became a McNair scholar because Terry Rizzo told me to do that. After, shit, eight years before then, George Winey had told me to do that, and it passed. So when I got back, George was gone. And I'm like, oh, man, that brother touched my soul. But then Terry didn't even know, when he passed the baton, and it stuck. Then I realized, you know what? People keep seeing something in me that I need to look at myself and see. So I started really getting serious about academics. I told myself I'm gonna get a straight 4.0 and I've never had that as an undergraduate. Last thing, I, last time I think I had that I was in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. I got a 3.98 cause I set a goal. Cause someone inspired me cause they saw something in me. Then I realized I'm smart enough to be a scholar. And so I went through and I had some challenge. I changed my major twice. I had some challenges bro, but inevitably I finished the PhD came home and like the universe works, it will reward you when you're doing the right kinds of things because things will align, but you can't sure. give up hope and you got to know how powerful you are and you got to channel that power when things get their hardest because that's usually when it's about to break through and things work
0: out. No, I that's a beautiful story. And I think it it goes along with the theme that I've been noticing, excuse me, throughout a lot of these interviews that I've been doing with the black community here on campus. And it's just this idea of mentorship, right? Sponsorship, uh, allyship, however you want to kind of classify those people that seemingly pop into your life. Sometimes it may seem like by chance, but when you look on back on it uh, in hindsight, it was meant to happen, right? But one thing that I also appreciate that you shared, because I always try to tell students this, especially younger students, right? there's always been a clash of the older generation and the younger generation when it comes to the black community specifically, right? And and it's natural, it's natural. The older generation has been through some things and has saw some things and the younger generation is looking at them like y'all put up with that, like for real. And it can kind of create, um, kind of creates a, a, a little bit of a, a tension in terms of how we share information across time from the older to the younger generation. And one thing that I always like to emphasize is, right, as people within the older generation, it's insanely important to make sure that the hand is extended backwards, right? Right. That you're always looking behind you to see who is following on that same path, who's about to hit those same hurdles, who's about to hit those same potholes, and making sure that you can kind of steer them in the right direction. But on the other end, as a young person, we cannot be too prideful to not take that help. And I think that's a big issue that a lot of young black folks have, right? Because they had to they had to overcome all of the odds. Being college educated and loving yourself in and it of itself is an act of revolution, right? Right. Um, it, right. It goes against everything that the power structure has been trying to put in place for the last six, seven hundred years. Yeah. And so... Because of that. Right. It's a huge chip on the shoulder. I'm going to overcome these odds. And even if I'm struggling, I'm not going to ask for help because I need to do this by myself because that mentality, or that seems to validate, you know, Going through that struggle seems to validate everything for us. And I want to tell students like you're going to have to work hard and you're going to struggle that it it, it don't matter. That's what's going to happen. But your mentality and your attitude about how you approach that struggle can really make a difference. And demanding or going out and seeking resources that you have a right to doesn't invalidate your experience or the hard work that you're putting in to get to the goal of where you want to be. I got a few things for you to connect this.
1: So, I give keynote addresses at black graduations. I think I've done it three times at UCR. I've done it at San Bernardino Valley, at Chafee. So, watch. There's two things that I say. I came up with this quote Our limitlessness is bound within the realm of possibilities we're nurtured by. Our Mm. limitlessness is bound within the realm of possibilities. We're nurtured by. We're limitless. Mm -hmm. Think about it. Why would you keep putting all these negative messages about these people and put a target on their back unless there was something that you're trying to restrict, constrain, and control? Mm -hmm. Our limitlessness is bound within the realm of possibilities we're nurtured by. We've got to be careful about who nurtures us and we've got to be comfortable being nurtured. You're talking about mentorship because in our community, we say it takes a village. Why? It's a village of people who support you, who care about you. So in my speech, after I do that little quote, I say, build your dream team. It starts and it ends with you. It starts with you right now. All the work you've done, all the things to get you right here to even be listening to what I'm saying. It ends with the you that you keep pushing into the future to be. Now it's sandwiched by a few key people. One group are the people you reach back to. Mm to make sure that you're bridging the community the right way because it takes a village. The mm-hmm. other is the people you reach forward to who have gone through the things you're talking about to make sure that you dodge the things that you need to dodge that might be landmines and pitfalls, but also know the right ways to navigate this channel that could get restricted here and be wide open there that you can't see yet because you haven't been there. Mm-hmm. The only other person I didn't mention in this dream team in the middle are peers, because that's the group who you come together with, you find your spouses, you build families with, you build corporations and teams with. But the reality is that bridges the gap across all generations. And you see, I came up with that and give speeches for a reason, because your wisdom resonates with mine. See mm. yourself in me, my brother. Yes, sir.
0: Yes, sir. No, thank you for that. I, I. And again, you know, I'm already peeking at the time and I can just tell like we have so much more to talk about. but just for the sake of this episode and making sure we stay on track, we started off by making sure we were planted at UCR um, with your role of assessment and evaluation at the School of Medicine. So I want to kind of end a little bit on that note. Um, Talk to our students, our prospective students, current students, um, but specifically our Black students, right, that fit within that group. Why is the work that you're doing important for black students? Why should they be aware of the type of work that you're doing and understand exactly how it impacts them so that way they can make sure they are getting the most out of their education?
1: Let's flip hats. So what I was talking to you at the beginning was just one half of, of, of the role that I play in the hat that I wear. Yes, so I'm also vice chair of research mm-hmm. in psychiatry and neuroscience, which is my faculty appointment. The mm-hmm. first appointment we talked about as Associate Dean of Assessment and Evaluation is my administrative appointment. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with my faculty role. Yes, so my sir. faculty role is where I actually do a whole lot in the community. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of answers the other half of your question way back, and I didn't forget. This is a perfect mm-hmm. way to make it all happen. Yes, sir. So I, I, I rock this role of a faculty member who I do a lot of research. You, you have a psych background, so you why? Know, and so a social and behavioral research. But the wild thing about it is there's a lot of opportunity to do work in our community that has been overlooked for so long. So right now I actually have a federal grant. I mean, it's in its, it's, in its fifth year. Uh, I'm the PI on it and a lot of students wouldn't know what that means. It's the primary investigator. I'm also okay. the program director, which means I lead it. But what it's about is I've taken broad categories that necessarily don't speak to race per se, right? So as an example, the grant is a quality improvement grant. Quality improvement in health is kind of broadly defined. It depends on who you look at. Some people will say, well, quality improvement would really mean bringing together the community the doctors all the different experts who actually affect the life of and the health of all of us in the community and then making sure that we're each doing our part to improve the quality of health and keeping track of the things that we do to improve that effort but that's such a broad definition that it makes it kind of hard to approach it meanwhile a more restrictive definition still has some broadness to it as well so it's like Quality improvement is really the improvement of the practice and process of healthcare delivery, including the outcomes of health in the community. So what I did is I said, OK, all that's beautiful. I've taught that for years, but I wrote a grant on it because I also co-founded a program in the School of Medicine where the students have to do a quality improvement research project. But it's because they have to do it in residency. And one of the biggest reasons why residents stall out is because they're not good at research. They haven't had it since they were undergraduate, may never have had it. And then all of a sudden they finished medical school and are in residency, practicing in a hospital and don't know how to do research. Mm-hmm. So in the event that I started all of that and, and kind of co-founded it, I discovered that when you think about the definition of quality improvement, it really can be geared toward and aimed at where the healthcare system is most broken. Mm. That automatically introduces health care disparities and people of color because it's most broken with us. We suffer most from the system. Everything is health. So if you're getting shot in the back and levels of different chemicals in the minds, in the bodies of black community members who know about that are spiked, there is an issue in health all the time with us. Mm. So it's a perfect way of saying, "Okay, now I've got a two point three million dollar grant. Half of it each year goes to salaries. Half of it goes to programming. What I do is work on programming that's trying to actually help to uplift the community. So right now, I have a program called Indigenous Gardens and Gleans. We're the world's first people. The first thing that blacks forget is that they want to give credit to the red, and that's our brother. So the reality is we're both indigenous peoples. Don't let the oppressor fool you. So the Gardens and Gleans is returning back to our roots. Mm -hmm. We especially now need to be gardening more than ever. So if you checked out and watch, I know you know about this brother because he's called the uh, Gangster Gardener, Ron Finley. Mm. He's Dr. Carolyn Murray, who's one of our professor's nephew. But what's crazy is I've partnered with Carolyn Murray with this Indigenous Gardens and Cleans program and her STEM Academy. Wild thing about it is I didn't know that Ron Finley was her, her nephew. I was inspired by Ron Finley like a good seven, eight years ago. Because I was mm-hmm. like, man, my parents come from the country where I used to go back and see my grand, great grandfathers literally owning property and gardening and selling watermelons in the town that my family grew up in. So I know that there's this agricultural history that we need to return to. Because if we can't trust you with our health, with the foods that you provide for us in our community, it might be better for us to grow it ourselves. But now, here's what's crazy. The reality is there's a very natural therapeutic benefit to being connected to the soil and the earth that provides us life we let this oppressor get us all caught up in materialistic synthetic things of valuing and meanwhile we've missed the very nature of things around us that sustain us so it gives us an opportunity to return to that but this project also connects to the homeless and i've been working with the homeless for three and a half years because again when you talk about quality improvement they're neglected and too many of them look like us So what I do is I gear all my research efforts, my grant efforts, my faculty appointment efforts to uplifting our community. And I can't do it by myself. But when I have grant funding, now I don't have to ask nobody for money. So then what I do is I say, okay, there's a genius over there, a genius over there, a genius over there. Let me bring them all together. And then the Mm -hmm. first thing I do is do like I am. I'm inspirational. They hear me then I don't ever have to do this. I don't have my hand out. I'm like, oh, wait, I got money for you, for you, for you, for that, for that, for that. Let's make this happen and take care of our community. That's the difference between what I bring to the community and some of the other brothers and sisters. And I should say it this way. I think most of us do that. Mm -hmm. I want to say other brothers and sisters of color who are used to the assimilated game of what you do in a university. Mm -hmm. And I said this to you before. So look, the university is in our community. If you look at one of the most powerful resources and beacons of change it is that until it gets in the hands of more humane individuals who care and really see that it's an extension of the community should be an asset to the community and an extension of that and part of it invested in it we're not changing anything but I see that vision because I know if you look at they be talking about where pyramids are strategically positioned as potential power structures looking at longitudinal and latitudinal lines Man, you've got most communities, and we can just take California. We've got 10 UCs, at least 23 to 26 Cal States, depending upon which ones are new and you count. We've yeah. got 100, right around 17 community colleges.
0: And then yeah, we've got 72 70. private right. universities. Right, there, right, 24. to
1: 108. Man, we've got so many institutions of higher learning. We need to make sure that they are used to transform our community, because it shouldn't just be that you attract our babies from the community. Milk them of their resources financially, drain them and give them an education and then plug back into the same old system. The system is supposed to change. If a professor says just from an undergraduate degree, if you don't walk out of here transformed from when you first walked in, get your money back. Man, if that university doesn't transform the community, then it needs to be refunded the whole institution. So we got to change that.
0: Yeah. No. And, um, you know, and I I, I think. Everything that you just laid out for us really goes back into what I brought up earlier about whether you have resources or at the very least have access to resources, right? So when I talk to young students about tapping in, right, it don't matter if they got a fancy title PhD in front of their name, right? Dr. Davis, he is still a very real human being. Probably can relate to you on more ways than you would think, right? So don't let these titles, don't let these PhDs, don't let all these fancy letters intimidate you from reaching out for people that you think can put you. This brother just said he has over a $2 million grant, half of which is dedicated to salary, which means the people that are working with him on this grant is making bread. Half of two mil is one mil. And even if you got 10, 15 people on your team, they're making bread, right? And here's what's real. It, and you just said half a two meal is one meal.
1: And over a five year time frame, that means that two hundred fifty thousand dollars in salaries every year are going to actually hire people and have been. I'm in my fifth year, and most of them sorry. are people of color from our community, because I'm the one controlling the grant. Yeah, I'll make sure that they're qualified and everything else. That's real. That should Mm -hmm. be a given. But the reality Mm -hmm. is that I'm the one in charge of that, making the decisions and looking for people who look like us and have the passion and the education to make sure that they're committed to transforming our community and can. That's what this is about.
0: And that's what I want you know, young students to know is, you know, we hear the, you know, the phrase how much a dollar costs all the time. Right. But, you know, in this environment, in the context of a university, how much is an email worth? Right. right? How much is an email worth? Maybe 10 minutes of your time to make sure your grammar and spelling is correct. Right. But an email to Dr. Davis can lead to so much more other than just saying, hey, what's up? Right. And that's
1: and you. I got to say this because you're, you're flowing. Look, Two things. One, I literally have had so many brothers and sisters. I've had the pleasure, the honor of just helping. It may have been just this amount. Right. Mm -hmm. And it comes back full circle because it feels so amazing when they're like, hey, I got an email from a brother who was like, man, Charles. He was an undergraduate at UCR. I helped him out just a little bit with getting on doing some work, writing a letter for him. He ended up Mm -hmm. going to Chapman, getting his PharmD. He's a pharmacist now. You know, and it's been stories like that, right?
0: Undergrad, yeah, shout out to chapman. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean it's
1: it's things like that, right? I mean, and let me say this because I I have to emphasize this. Yes, sir. The reason why I'm approachable is because just like you, I am you. And Mm. and let's go further. Because of that, I also understand that the credentials and degrees are a hustle. Come on, man. Now your hustle can be legitimate, it is. My hustle is legitimate. I'm about transforming my community, but those titles don't mean a damn thing other than I can actually at least better realize the hustle and the goals that I have associated with it. Mm. But that doesn't change who I am. My name is Kendrick. That's who my Mm -hmm. mom named me and my dad named me for a reason. So Mm. that title is not my name. It's not even my identity. It's something that I use in order to get things accomplished. So superheroes, do all kinds of things, right? They put on different uniforms and capes because there's a different associated goal. That's what the PhD and all these titles are. It's that different stuff I pull from the closet in order Mm -hmm. to reach goals that I have that transform not only me and my family, but my community, but I know who I am. And it's not that cape, it's not that costume, or it's not those titles. Those Mm -hmm. are hustles that give me the kind of influence that I want to have in order to make my life rich and all those around me.
0: Yes, sir. And, you know, I, again, this this conversation has been nothing short of amazing and I, I want students to take away everything that we're saying, right? You have to be willing to take responsibility for the resources that you are or maybe aren't receiving, right? I had that same experience when I was in undergrad and I had that chip on my shoulder and I was trying to balance work, being a father, going to school you know, feeling slighted by the system. You know what I'm saying? Being jaded. And I had to realize like, okay, I'm not receiving resources because for so long I've been telling myself that I don't need them or I don't want them. Right. right? Um, Right. And that's not and that's not the way to success. You're going to need key and strategic people um, in your life to help you along that journey. And it's not always going to come from, you know, that that, that God sent individual who landed in your life at the right time, sometimes you have to be really proactive about these things. So thank you for emphasizing that, you know, these titles, these PhDs, these master's degrees, these bachelor's degrees, right? They're a a component to where you want to go, right? But that's not your identity. Um, You bring, you make the PhD valuable because you brought your lived experience into that work, right? You make your titles valuable because you brought your lived experience into the way that you want to spend this two million dollars on x y and z and that's what i want students to realize and take away from this podcast is that these are real people these are real black people in positions that can give you access to resources or at the very 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 least point you in the direction to where you can get those resources so brother, i gotta
1: say this last thing because it's beautiful i know we're almost out of time there's a brother named dr ansley abraham okay he's the director of the SREB which is the Southern Regional Education Board. It's kind of like the McNair Scholars Program and I don't want to get into that deeply even though I want to honor Ronald McNair. Mm -hmm. The reason why I bring up Dr. Ansley Abraham is because when you were talking about that persistence, that's how I got here. Mm -hmm. So that taking 10 minutes to send an email, that kind of stuff is Mm -hmm. critical and then making sure that you took that time to be grammatically correct and make sure that your wording was appropriate. Man, I bugged Dr. Abraham to become an SREB doctoral, doctoral scholar to even get to Oklahoma because I couldn't afford it. Man, mm. we drove to Oklahoma with a hoopty, mm. a push to start, and it was a bucket. It wasn't no push to start because it was keyless. It was push <laughs> to start because you had to pop the clutch. You know, we drove yes, to sir. Oklahoma with $200 to our name, no air conditioning. On a summer day, that was 113 Mm. driving across country that took us 39 hours in a 19 hour trip. And we didn't stop at no hotel because we didn't have no ends. We had two kids in the back seat. I was going to graduate school for the first time, taking a risk. But because of Dr. Ansley Abraham, I knew that when I got there, there was going to be funding that I got. I just had to hold on for about a month with $200 to our name. Mm. But that story is both the story of persistence. And I'll tell it later Mm-hmm. No. And our babies have to understand that when you want something, you got to go after it. That yes, doesn't sir. mean that you can't be polite and everything. I was real polite. But I went to a conference where Dr. Abraham was there after I wrote him and everything else. And I was like, this isn't enough. So I happened to go out to get some McDonald's late at night. That's all I could afford. And I see he and his beautiful wife walking. And I'm like, I'm gonna make sure we cross paths. Yes. Sir. And then I said, good evening, Dr. Abraham, Mrs. Abraham. You guys look so adorable together. I'm not trying to interrupt your, your romantic evening. I just got to plant a seed. I was a teenage father. I've gotten a chance to see that higher academy can actually change my life in getting a PhD. I'm almost finished with my bachelor's degree and I have to be an SREB scholar. Please help me because I found that Oklahoma might not actually offer funding. And it's the only state I've picked to go to graduate school in where you might offer funding. Man, after about a three month time frame, he told me to hit him up. I think he told me to hit him up like in two months. I hit him up like in two weeks and I called him every week and I bugged him like crazy. And the next year I got into the program. I was in my master's program and he had me to come to speak, but he told that story of how persistent I was. So I wanted to take that three minutes to just say, man, you've got to be persistent. You have to yes. genuinely go after what you want and not be afraid to also ask because it takes a village means that we always need support. Yes. Don't be so prideful that you don't reach out, that you don't use your persistence to get what you desire in life because you deserve it.
0: Yes, sir. And, you know, we're going to end on this last question, Um, keeping in the spirit of optimism, keeping in the spirit of hope that our ancestors moved with, that allows me and you to be here having this conversation. When you look at future generation of black scholars coming through UCR, what is one of your most optimistic visions for them moving forward? Oh, wow. Man, I've met
1: some of the most genius Youngsters like yourself, um, Thank my you, daughter, sir. my son, man. I, I want you guys to realize that the more you connect and do mm. things together, the better mm. off we're going to all be. Um, and you were kind of, that theme, if you think about it, was constantly coming up as we talked this whole time. Because yeah. you kept talking about that tendency that we have, especially as black men, mm. to act like we don't need any help.
0: Yeah.
1: And here's what's crazy. Then if you get to this mindset that you don't need any help and you did it by yourself, you miss all those villagers who supported you. But you also miss the opportunity to connect with them because you act like that old model that they try to push, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And that never happens. We always have a community of support. And -hmm. then what ends up happening is if you miss that opportunity to acknowledge it and be grateful for it, you also miss the opportunity to connect with it. Because once you think you made it, You ain't made it. And now what ends up happening is, and there's a beautiful poster that we circulate that I saw. I wish I remember one of the artists who painted it out of San Bernardino. But Mm. it shows a black man on top of a wall reaching back down to another brother who's down on the wall. And that's Mm. the image of us constantly reaching back. But we also have to reach across. So if he would have been reaching across to other brothers and sisters who are already up on the wall and now reaching down, think about the support that you provided, not just Mm. one arm. And all the stress yeah. that you've relieved off that one arm so we gotta lock arms for all of us who are moving in the right direction and making it to ensure that now we're the safety net for anyone who needs more help to make it
0: mm. beautifully said um dr davis you know with much love and respect i, I thank you for being here uh I thank you for holding space and having this conversation with us you know it. it, it conversations like this uh, this is why I, d- I started this podcast you know for young black students it, it it gets my heart rate up my skin is tingling um because we're so far yet yeah, we're 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 so close you know what i'm yeah. saying the solutions are, um the solutions are are a lot simpler than they may seem a lot of the times, right? And it and it comes from, at least for me, it comes with that idea of empathy, um, love, nurturing, community, um, and just finding even small ways that we can just come together a little bit closer. Um, so, you know, I I really appreciate you giving us your time on the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast. I was super happy to amplify your voice. Um, obviously, we're going to have to have a whole a whole series of conversations <laughs> just with the two of us so we can really kind of unpack, you know, all of these beautiful concepts that we brought up during this conversation. So, you know, I, I really want to express how much I appreciate you for being here with us. Um, thank you so much.
1: Brother, the blue, gold and black, man, it just resonates with me. And so I appreciate that. One last thing. I was on a meeting before this with... I want to say at least three black doctors, all female. Mm. Um, oh, no, four black doctors, three female, one male from the community. And then a, a brother who's phenomenal entrepreneur and activist in the community. Mm. Interestingly, there's a whole series of talks that they want to do kind of similar to this. And I realized that earlier on, I just didn't tell them about it. I think we probably need to connect because right now the city of Riverside wants to do some talks like this with us. Have us have some basic messaging that we're sending out to the black community. But one of the things that we all talked about was that that's not a platform that most of us even uh, go to to look for information. So the likelihood that it reaches our community is low. So then they start talking about going to KUCR and other platforms and mediums to get our messages out. Since they're wanting to do a series and you and I are already working on that together. I think this might be a wonderful way of getting more black faculty at UCR and community members who are making moves and changes to share aspects of their story that might get these students to understand there's a community of us connected in the university, out into the community, working on their behalf and all of our behalf to make this a better university and community.
0: Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, I would be more than happy to um, engage with you, engage with them, and coming up with whatever it is that we can do to make sure that these voices are amplified and heard. So um, thank you again. I can't say it enough. Everybody, this has been another edition of the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast with Dr. Kendrick Davis. If you take nothing else away from this episode, because we dropped so many gems on y'all, shoot that email. You need support, you need resources, shoot that email, bug these people with the fancy titles and the PhDs and the master's degrees because they want to help you. Um, And they sometimes we just need, they just need a little bit of help of knowing where you're at so they can meet you where you're at. So Dr. Davis, as always, we're always going to be willing to amplify your voice. Thank you so much.
1: My brother, that was love and beautiful, man. Thank you so much. It was an honor, a pleasure and a joy, just like last time. We got to keep doing this.
0: Yes, sir. Absolutely. All right, y'all. We'll catch you on the next episode of Blue, Gold and Black. Catch y'all later. Thank you for joining us on Blue, Gold, and Black. This program is produced by the Community Engagement and Outreach Unit of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of California, Riverside. Learn more about attending UCR by visiting admissions.ucr.edu. And be sure to check out the description for other useful links and resources. Help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And be sure to check out our podcast videos on YouTube. Catch you guys later.